Well, for the fourth or fifth time today, welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. I know you were as blessed as I was with the worship this morning. Thank you so much, Ricky, for filling in for David. And don't we didn't miss a beat, did we? Just beautiful. And all the others who, as Ricky said earlier, put in, or, or Lee said, or Bert said, somebody said, about how much time they, they put in. I want to uh, just encourage you, uh, members of Grace Community Church especially, to be here for that meeting next week afterwards. The Hunzikers in uh, Italy, several of us have been over there and seen the work. I want to say that evangelicals are something like less than 1% in Italy. You can imagine it is a very small percentage of people. The Catholic Church actively works against any ministry that they uh, try to engage there in their little town about uh, two hours northeast of Rome. They're at a camp, and so people from all over Italy, evangelicals all over Italy, come to this camp. And unfortunately, many of the evangelicals in Italy are quite legalistic. And to go to Isola, Camp Isola, is like a breath of fresh air. And Joe and Stefania are having a real impact on evangelicalism in Italy. There is a sense in which our support of them, and we are their primary supporters, our support of them impacts an entire nation uh, uh, in, in Europe. So please be here next week. Lots of things that are required for this visa, some things that we have to sort of sign on for, although we'll not, we'll be limited in what we uh, extend our, the help that we already give them, but we have to show figures and all that kind of stuff. So we need to talk about it. We need to talk about transportation, housing. Um, and so next Sunday after the service, the elders have called for this special meeting, and we will waive the one, the two-week requirement. We'll ask you to waive the two-week requirement if we uh, find that between now and then that we have to make some decisions. A lot of this stuff is coming at us sort of last minute, and we're trying to scramble to make sure that the process is expedited. Now, having said that, I will ask you, are you an organized person? Or a not-so-organized person? Are you a planner or a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of a person? I don't know that I've ever met a couple that both are the exact same thing. It's just, it just works that way. So vacations are interesting, shall we say. You know, like, let's plan! We're talking about trying to make a trip to see Sarala up in Boston in August. And Allison says, we better get on that right now. And I'm like, right now? Come on, it's May for goodness sake. I mean, we got to get on it. So it really works to my advantage because time and again I have to say, well, the tickets are not as cheap as they were back when we first started talking about this. Does change frighten you or does it excite you? It's really different for all of us. Since our study of Hebrews has led us into chapter 11, and since we are talking about faith, you may think, well, if I am on one side of this ledger as opposed to the other side of this ledger, then I am one who clearly has faith. 
Uh, if you are adventurous and spontaneous, there's a good chance that you think that you have the kind of faith that Hebrews 11 describes. Or if you're structured in dislike change, then maybe your faith is not so great. Let me just say your personality has little, if anything, to say about the amount of faith that you do or do not have. All people of all different kinds of personalities have faith. And all people, all different kinds of people of different personalities don't have faith or have very weak faith. The examples of men and women uh, who were commended for their faith in Hebrews 11 had widely differing personalities, and they were called to trust God in different circumstances, some of them quite extreme. And it didn't matter whether or not they were outgoing, quick to adapt to change, or very slow to adapt to change. The things that God called them to were extreme, and faith was required for each of them. So there is a great deal for us to learn in Hebrews 11. <clears throat> and this is the second of what is most likely going to be three weeks in the book of, uh, excuse me, the, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. But our study of Hebrews, if you're just getting here, dates back to mid-September. And as, as, as is always the case... With different scripture, verses in scripture, there's so much more to the truth that you find in a particular verse or a particular passage or even a particular chapter. When it's connected to the context, just think of the ways that people misuse uh, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me. That means I can reach my goal lifting weights. For me, that's about 36 pounds, I think. I can, do, I can accomplish my sales goals this month. I can do this. I can do that. Paul was writing from prison. And he was essentially saying, look, I've learned how to get along when life is really tough. And I've learned how to get along when I'm, I've got a whole lot. It doesn't matter. My trust in the Lord is the same regardless. But this is something I've learned over time. In fact, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hebrews 11 is connected to a larger body of work. Since the chapter is rich with these examples of Old Testament saints who trusted God in very difficult or unusual circumstances, it's, it's very easy to yield to the temptation of focusing only on the examples and miss the larger ideas that the writer is trying to illustrate by using these people as examples of, of how faith works and how it's tied into the larger truth of Jesus Christ living, dying, being raised from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father. So each week in Hebrews 11, talking about some big picture truth that will help illustrate or help give a, an overview of the particular text that we are in uh, on that day. Last week we talked about four different ways that um, ideas were being put forth. And I started to list those today, but I figured some of you would start writing who weren't here last week, and then you get frustrated when the screen went off. So just go online. You can see the written manuscript or get the, uh, uh, the audio on our website. This morning, there are five more ideas we want to consider as we look at Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 22. And since we're building as we go, we're going to start with number five. Four last week, this is number five. <clears throat> Obedience follows faith. 
not the other way around. Now notice the word that is not there, necessarily. Obedience follows faith, not necessarily the other way around, just period. Obedience follows faith, but faith does not follow obedience. A life of faith binds us to God. After all, what is faith? But that which says, I believe you, Lord. Your way is best. If it were not for you, I would not know eternal life and I would have nothing in my future but fiery judgment. I give you my life. What you proclaim, I will believe. What you, will, what you require, I will do. But I don't have the strength to do what you require. And even still, you graciously provide that as well. Several places in the New Testament warn against a casual approach toward faith. You are deceiving yourself if your faith has no impact whatsoever on the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you look at the world. If good works and fruit of the Spirit are not only missing in your life, but if you are blissfully unconcerned about good works and about the, the fruit of the Spirit, then you may not be in relationship with God at all. Even more alarming though, if you base your relationship with God on your, God on your good works, Scripture says it's not going to happen for you. In, in fact, if these last sentences have sort of set off alarm bells in your mind, if you say, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not. Look, most likely you have faith. If you are depending on your good works, chances are good. Such comments don't bother you at all. If you're trusting what you've done, look, I've just got to do better. I can't believe how many times I share the gospel with people. And say, now, do you understand what it means to follow Jesus? Oh, yes. Just do the best you can and hope everything turns out all right. And he's like, no. I said it as simply as it could possibly be said. But only those, as Jesus said, who have ears to hear will hear. So, obedience is not the basis of our relationship with Jesus. It's the result of our relationship with Jesus. If you tell me that you believe that Jesus died for you and that's your only hope of heaven, then honestly, I feel as confident as I possibly can, as, as, as comfortable as Scripture will allow me to feel about your relationship with Jesus. And that's pretty confident. If your only hope is Jesus, according to Scripture, you're saved. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, it is almost certain that you will desire to live a life that pleases Him. If, however, you are working hard on obeying so that God will let you into heaven, your obedience may actually keep you from faith in Jesus. Your dependence will be on your moral condition. Obedience, though, follows faith. Not the other way around. Second or sixth, faith sees more than meets the eye. 
I mean, that would be, seem to be so obvious as to be unnecessary to even include it in this list. I'll only say this. Uh, knowing that there is more to faith than meets the eye. Knowing that there's more to God in this life and all that God has intended for us than meets the eye is easy in the early years of being a Christian. <coughs> Especially if you trusted Christ somewhere from your mid-teens on. It's easy in the early days saying, yeah, man, I, I, finally, the, the veil has been lifted. I see what's really true. And even though you can't see it, I see everything so clearly. And it's easy to feel that way when things are going pretty well and God has been answering your prayers just exactly as you've requested Him to. Then it's easy to say, yeah, there's more than meets the eye. But faith is most meaningful. When things are not going your way. When, when the heavens seem to be silent and you believe God anyway. Next, faith looks forward, not backwards. Another one of those rather obvious points about faith. Please understand when I say this that I, I am very aware that Scripture constantly is calling us to look back and remember the faithfulness of God. And as we remember God's faithfulness to us, we see how he has been leading us all along the way. And we're going to move forward in faith. In so doing, our faith in the present is strengthened when we look back. The point here is to not be like the Israelites who said to Moses, Oh, why did God bring us out here in this wilderness to die? We had leeks and cucumbers and all kinds of good things. Fried cornbread back in Egypt. And, and, we, and look at us dying out here. Apparently, they had forgotten the number of times they had cried out for deliverance. You get the point. Number eight in our list, faith doesn't always make sense, but then God is bigger than we are. My goodness, uh, some of the things that we're called to do as believers, you're, it's astounding some of the things we're going to look at in Hebrews 11 uh, this morning. I mean, it used to be that only some of your family members and close friends thought you were a wee bit fanatical with this Christianity thing. Now the whole nation thinks you're nuts. And I might say, looking out, that they are not... Well, no, I won't, I won't say. Don't you know that is what people thought about the, the individuals listed in Hebrews 11? At some point, people thought, Abraham, he's crazy. Look at all of these people. Keep your eyes on Jesus and remember this last big picture truth that we'll find in today's text. In our union with Christ... Faith comes alive through death. In the drawer uh, beside my bed, I have a copy of the February 21st, 2011 issue of Time Magazine, although I'm not sure why. I was looking for something else the other day, and I'm like, oh, I've still got that in there, which tells you how long it's been since I've looked in that drawer. Uh, it's referring 
In fairness, let me, let me say, in fairness, the cover of time always promises more than it delivers. It's like, oh, all of this, and you read it, and it's like, oh, well, okay, this is something that some people are thinking about or experimenting with. But the, but the claim was startling, no matter what it said on the inside. 2045, the year man becomes immortal. It's referring, now look, this was in 2011, and I can tell you they've made a great deal of advance in this particular way of thinking since then. Uh, It's referring to singularity, the good version of which, if you never heard of singularity, the good version of singularity is that man and machine become one. The bad version, a la Matrix, machines take over. It's, It's not... A pleasant thought for most of us. For the people who are working on it, there's nothing that they think is greater in all of this world. Uh, in technology, there's a growing sense of ultimate control that is not too far from we are on the cusp of becoming gods. Biologists seem to be a bit more humble, but just a few more genetic breakthroughs, breakthroughs and a lot of them will join the deity chorus as well. I mean, I was shocked at the level of self-glorification in the last few pages of this article. And it seems to a lot of us, Bert and I have talked about this a lot, and some others of you and I have talked about this, but it seems like a modern-day Tower of Babel that the Lord is just going to take down. Um, And if He does, can you imagine if they shut the power grids down? Can you imagine what life is like Watch some of the dystopian films and you may, you may see what could possibly be in our future. But make no mistake about this. Very smart people are expecting the average lifespan for humans to rise dramatically over the next few decades. It's not surprising that people who fail to think about what happens after death or who don't want to think about what happens after death would seek to delay death as long as possible. Scripture teaches us, on the contrary, to embrace death in order that the life of Christ may have full reign in our lives. Now that doesn't mean that we should look forward to the day that our heart stops beating. It's very interesting when you read about older people, secular, non-believers, whatever... The older you get, the more you just prepare for death and the less startled you are about it. But this point is not saying just look toward death. When Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, in that same book of Philippians, he was in jail. He had been beaten silly countless times. He believed heaven at the level that he said, it would be so much better for me to depart And go on, but I think God has something here for me right now in order to help you. So I will most likely remain. But I promise you, I would rather be in heaven than to continue in this world. Now, when you say that, life will be miserable for you or you will have matured to levels that most of us don't get to early on. So, it is only when we die that we're going to see life as God intended for it to be. And furthermore, while we are alive on this earth, 
Only in dying to self will the resurrected life find expression in the believer's walk in this world. As cool and wonderful as that sounds, death to self is painful. It's difficult. It's always compared to Christ on the cross. What do you find appealing about the cross? It's difficult. When you understand all of the implications then again like Paul late in life you can say God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Christ. By whom I am crucified, by whom the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. All right, look, we need to get to the text. Uh, I'm going to only read the first portion of our text and then we'll work our way through that and then go on and work our way uh, all the way through verse 22. Although right now we're just going to read Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 12. As is our custom, I will ask you if you would to please stand for the reading of Scripture. <clears throat> By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's, you know, some of you do vacation that way and you think, hey, I'm cool with that. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Do you feel the tension in that phrase? I've got it later in the notes, but just look at that. He went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that is foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand. By the seashore. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we realize according to the New Testament that we are some of those grains of sand. Who are in your covenant family. Who are considered your children. I pray that as we read about faith this morning. That you would not allow us to think of faith as some psychological state in which we just somehow think everything's going to work out all right. Or, Lord, that we have faith in ourselves, but that the object of our faith remains steadfast in our heart and minds at all times. Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for our sins. Lord, we thank you for this time together and pray that you'll open our hearts to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, if uh, you ever have an opportunity to visit the Holy Land, to visit Israel, I would encourage you to do so. Oh, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous here. It's dangerous everywhere. Look, if you get a chance to go, I would encourage you to go. I mean, a, a week in Israel is, is about like a, a year of Bible college or even a semester in seminary. It, you cannot imagine the benefit of just seeing the places where Jesus Walked and, and seeing all of the, and you start, things start clicking in your mind. It's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. 
Some of you need to see a map of a, a, a place to get it all figured out. Others of you need to be on the ground. You need to, 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 to see it to get it all figured out. And then you go back to the map and it all makes... When you're in Israel, you start seeing things that you've learned in Scripture just fall into place. So look, if, if enough of you want to get up a trip, let's go in the next year or two. Uh, if I'm not too old by then. So... Let's, let's think about it. I'll tell you this, though. If you go, you're going to wonder what's the big deal about that particular land. I mean, it's, it, it, it's beautiful in its own way, but mostly it's beautiful because it's in your heart to be beautiful. It's just like any place. People say, how could you live in a place like that? Well, you know, it's just home. It's just home. And that Middle East, that Israel for the covenant people of God up until the time of Jesus was absolutely home. Abraham, following the call of God, left a very cosmopolitan city that was the greatest port in the ancient Near East, uh, Middle East. Uh, Ur of the Chaldees was a happening place. I mean, look, they had their own God. They had traffic coming in and out. Goods, services, it was a happening place. There are beautiful places in Palestine, but frankly, not much of it is all that attractive. It's prettier in the north than it is down around Jerusalem. There's, again, beauty, but most of the beauty is in our heart. There's a lot more green now than there was then in Bible times. But God marked this particular spot on the globe to build a people that would represent him to the world. And thankfully, as we've already acknowledged, Galatians tells us that all those who believe in Jesus are Abraham's offspring. We are his spiritual children. There's so much to admire about Abraham's faith, in addition to the fact that he followed the Lord into the unknown. And he was willing to do without, pretty much living as a nomad for the rest of his life. Did you catch? They lived in tents. He had to bargain for, to buy a little piece of land to bury. His wife and several of them ended up being buried in that area. A far greater challenge to Abraham's faith was to believe that God would allow Sarah and him to have a child in their old age. Verse 11 says that Sarah had faith as well, but when we read the Genesis account, there's not a great deal of faith that Sarah displayed. She laughed when she heard the angel of the Lord talking about how that nearly 100-year-old Abraham would would have a child with nearly 90-year-old Sarah. She would conceive and have a child. So how can the author of Hebrews say that Sarah had faith? Well, first of all, there is a possibility in the Hebrew, in the language, that this was saying Abraham had faith that Sarah would be able to have the power to conceive. Uh, it, it's, it's problematic, though. She considered him faithful who had promised. The second possibility is that Sarah believed after she was rebuked for laughing at God's promise. That would be gospel-centered, wouldn't it? She's rebuked. She repents. She believes. In fact, Abraham and Sarah named their boy Laughter. 
That's what Isaac means. Laughter. God has caused me to laugh. There's more though. Look at this next section beginning with verse 13. These all, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having, an, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That homeland wasn't Israel, as the author of Hebrews makes it, it represented the homeland, the ultimate homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. After the time that Abraham left Ur, he never had a permanent home. He was a sojourner in the land without native or civil rights. Didn't have anything close to the kind of rights that other people had. Think back to verse 9, that tension between the land of promise and a foreign land. As our spiritual father, Abraham's life reminds us of what life should be for believers as strangers and exiles on the earth. I'll, I'll confess to you, I don't like having my world threatened by the things that are going on in society today. I've grown, I confess, I have grown far too comfortable in this place and time. As a follower of Jesus Christ who used to be applauded and now is not only mocked but jeered and pointed to as a source of all that is bad in our world. We have lived so far for a long time in America. We have pretty much lived in heaven until we no longer did. Sometimes I'm convinced that God sends trials our way to remind us that this isn't home. Look, if you live in a good place, if you have not had any major problems in five years, you have probably forgotten that this isn't home. When people say, this is as good as it gets, they really mean it. If you're a believer, it's, it's nowhere close. But we tend to forget it. And just think, God is blessing us so much. Oh, thank you, Lord, for blessing me in this place. Occasionally, he says, this is not it. And you need to remember. And to be reminded that this is not our home is to our advantage. But we only know that by faith. Because when you're reminded that this isn't home, life, something bad has happened. And it's tough. If Abraham and his offspring had not lived by faith, you know what would have happened? They would have said, let's go back to Ur. I mean, this is, this is crazy. We've made some money here. Um, God has blessed us. Pharaoh gave us a bunch of sheep uh, and cattle. And Abimelech did. Let's get out of here. Let's go home to Ur where life would be a lot easier, especially with the money we have now. 
we're unaware that that ever crossed Abraham's mind. In fact, when he sent his servant back to, to his homeland, where he came from, to find a wife for Isaac, he said, do not under any circumstances take Isaac back. And that meant ultimately, even if he had to marry a woman from the land that they lived in, a Canaanite woman. God honored Abraham's faith, though, and gave Rebekah to Isaac. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all made terrible choices in their lives, because of their faith, God said that he was not ashamed to be called their God. Not a great thing for the Lord to say about you. Excuse me, i got to do this or else I'm going to, by faith, be carried to the hospital. <laughs> I'm going to trip over that thing and it's going to be bad. Um, wh- who, is, who is it that you don't want to be ashamed of you? Who is it that you're trying so hard to please that they're going to say, I'm proud of you? Far better for us to be concerned about what God thinks of us than anybody else. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, this is a really tough passage of Scripture. So let's go to verse 20. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, look, there are are several instances in Scripture that justify explanation where you simply have to say, I don't get this, but I trust you, Lord. Even so, let me attempt to bring a little bit of context to a very difficult uh, story to understand. The first thing I want to say is how important it is when you are reading scripture, when you're reading history of any kind, not to impose 21st century values onto ancient times. They looked at life very differently than we did than we do today. And God, who is perfect and never changes, dealt with them in the context of their culture. For instance, when ancient civilizations went to war, total annihilation of the enemy was the prerogative of the victor, and it was often the goal. When when God says, go in, wipe them out, man, woman, child, and animal, if you understood about that culture, you would understand why God would say that. Well, you'd at least have a better understanding of why God said that. But when you look at the culture, everybody did that. It was just expected when you leave or when you go in, you level, then just take it. Take all the people, kill them. Furthermore, the sacrifice of a firstborn child, especially a son, was not uncommon at all. It's absolutely true that what we know about God, what we know about Yahweh, is that He distinguished himself from all of the pagan gods by not requiring sacrifice of children. How would Abraham have known that? This was 400 years before Scripture had ever been written. Before Moses was given the law. Abraham would have had no context whatsoever for thinking that God wouldn't require it. Now... 
what we know, we know how this story ends, and we also recognize that <laughs> as sinners, God rightly requires the life of the firstborn. But in Leviticus 27 and Numbers 3, he graciously made provision to redeem the firstborn with five shekels. Nobody died in God's plan through the worship of God. Nobody had to die. Nobody had to be sacrificed. But again, Abraham wouldn't have known that. There was never any danger that God would allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But we are told in Genesis and Hebrews that God's command to Abraham was a test. And because of his faith, he did not hesitate to obey the Lord. Remember, obedience follows faith. While Abraham, uh, or excuse me, while God will never require us to do anything as extreme as he required of Abraham, we all face tests, don't we? And we all fail those tests along the way. The biggest mistake I ever made as an adult was a test. And I failed the test. And you may be thinking, yeah. Well, I've been given a test and I've failed it. I just don't think God wants anything to do with me. You think Abraham failed a few tests? I mean, do you remember a time or two when he said to his wife, Hey, pretend like you're my sister. Let Pharaoh take you into the harem so he won't kill me. Would you do that? And you know what is just absolutely crazy? Both times that Abraham did that, he walked away from those places far wealthier than he, than he was when he came. It's the gospel. It's grace. It makes no sense. And that's one of the things I'm going to say about a little bit later here and especially next week. Quit trying to make You don't have to explain everything. In fact, trying to explain everything in Scripture will keep you from a whole lot of truth because you have to make everything work. Sometimes you just have to say, I don't know. I don't know. And it's good to, to understand as much as you can, but just let it go sometimes. And say, God is God, He's bigger than I am, and I don't have to understand it at the levels that everybody seems to want to understand. Look, don't develop a law works mentality about tests that God uses to build your faith. See, God is doing these things not only to test us, but to build us up, to help us to grow. You're going to have opportunity for other tests in your life. Maybe, maybe at your dream job, the one on which so much of your future depends, your boss tells you to lie about something to cover up illegal activity. That's a test. It's not an easy one either. Maybe you have a particular group of friends who would disapprove of your gospel-saturated biblical values. So you're tempted, you're, you're tempted to keep silent or even to agree with them about all kinds of issues regarding bathrooms and other cultural flashpoints. You know what is a very... It's a big misnomer about the gospel. The gospel seems to many... To require very little of us. That's very wrong. 
It required everything of Abraham. It requires the followers of Jesus to be fully committed to God and his ways. Remember, though, our faith is not blind. Abraham is reasoning in his mind, look, okay, God has promised to bless the nations through Isaac. Isaac has been born miraculously. And now he's calling me to sacrifice Isaac. So clearly God's going to raise him from the dead. There's that beautiful picture of resurrection in the Old Testament that so many people missed. You and I would have missed it if we had been alive too. Mercifully though, the angel of God told Abraham to stay his hand. Abraham displayed amazing faith. When we went through the book of Genesis three or four years ago, I was just so taken with Abraham. So real, such a real guy. Loved and trusted God, but struggled with it at times. Very human, but he had great faith. No wonder the Old Testament constantly is pointing back Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, let's look at these last few verses of our text, verses 20 to 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. You know what I actually thought about trying to do? I actually thought about trying to get a sound effect for a record. You know how it goes, you know, music's playing, like what? By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. We'll come back to that in just a second. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You recall the story, don't you, of Jacob stealing Esau's blessing? You remember how furious Isaac was? So how in the world does Hebrews 11 say that the blessing was given by faith? One possibility is that, again, after the deed was done, Isaac accepted it as God's plan. Because very quickly, Isaac uh, made... Provision for Jacob to get out of Dodge and, and avoid Esau's murderous intentions. He knew that God's promise now was to go through Jacob. And so by faith he acted on that. Or it could just be that God sees things differently than we do. And we need to learn to trust him over our own perceptions about how he should operate. And we shouldn't be so quick to judge. Well, that person's a Christian. That person's not a Christian. Well, I know he says the right things, but he doesn't, you know, live like he ought to live. Look, if God can look at, Jesus, look at you and see you through Jesus and consider you perfect, if God can say, Brad Talley is perfect, then I can, he can call Isaac's blessing of Jacob and Esau in faith if he wants to. I, because I know how imperfect I am. And yet God sees me through the blood of Christ. The last thing our text, requir- our text requires us to think about. We're going to back up in just a second. But the last thing in, in, in these verses on the screen uh, is Joseph's <clears throat> command to take his bones out of Egypt in the future when the Israelites would return to the land that God had promised to Abraham. 
You think about Abraham and you admire his faith because he lived a hard life and yet made do. Joseph had the exact opposite experience after he came out of prison. Joseph was number two in the land and could do anything and have anything that he wanted at any time. So you have somebody who lives in tents all of his life and others who live, and another who lives, if not in Pharaoh's palace right next to it, a palace of his own. All of Egypt at his command. And yet by faith he said, don't leave my bones in this place. This is not home. My home is somewhere else. Next week we'll read about Moses making similar choices to identify with the people of God rather than enjoy all that the world has to offer. Faith sees beyond the present. Whether your life is exceptionally grand or devastatingly bad at the moment, there is great encouragement, great instruction and great encouragement for you in Hebrews 11. Trusting God for a day when all of the troubles of this world will be done and all of the riches and the good things of this world will seem as nothing. And the reason... The reason that we will enjoy these eternal blessings beyond description is because of what was pictured and represented in God's command to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So to close this morning, we'll back up just a bit in our text, which also reminds us of what happened in Genesis 22. God told Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, the son that he loved, and to offer him as a burnt Offering sacrifice. It's just a complete, all the way, sacrifice him, burn him up, all of him. Isaac had another son, or Abraham had another son, Ishmael. And yet, God says, this is the son of the promise. This is the son that you love. Your only son of the promise. Take him. To Mount Moriah. And kill him. Very near to the exact spot that Abraham displayed. Full trust and obedience to God's command. Jesus was lifted up. On Calvary as the Lamb of God. Dying for sinners. He obeyed the Father's will. There was no one. However, to stay the Father's hand. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Wrath. Sacrifice. Propitiation. Atonement. Satisfaction. No wonder those who reject God's gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Stand squarely in the path of God's wrath. Far better for us to hide behind the cross. Praise His name. For the death 
out of which brings incredible life for us. Life everlasting. And life in this world that is abundant. To the full. Rejoicing regardless of the circumstances. Let's pray. So, which is it for you? Extremely good. Almost beyond wretched. How is life for you today? Maybe somewhere in between. Maybe you feel like you're in a holding pattern. You've seen good things. You've seen bad things. You don't know what's coming next. God calls us to trust Him. And He calls us to trust Him on the basis of the Lamb of God who was slain for us. Died for our sins. Was buried. Rose again. And ever lives at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. That's how much God loves you. Don't look at this bunch in Hebrews 11 and say, oh, heroes of the faith. No, they, they made a lot of really bad decisions. Bad choices. And we, the kind of people we would think about bringing under church discipline, it's... it's Lord, um, your mercy to us is beyond anything we can comprehend. We're so grateful for the sacrifice of the one who lived that perfect life and died the death that we deserved. Thank you, Jesus, for life that flows out of your death. Lord, may we be aware that life flows from us as we die to self. Life to others. We are not left here to satisfy and please ourselves. We are left here to serve others. That's how we serve you. So God, help us to say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Hallelujah. Would you please stand?